You're listening to the Finding Christ in the Old Testament series, preaching by Pastor Rick Dressler at Maple City Baptist Church in Chatham, Ontario. For more information about Maple City, please visit us online at maplecitybaptistchurch.com. Ruth chapter 1 this morning. We have been in the book of Ruth. We're making our way through the Old Testament. We missed last week. I was not here. We thank God, I thank God for the good messages last week. I had a chance to hear those things online and appreciate the good word on Mother's Day in the morning and on John 3.16 in the evening. So thankful for that. We're back in Ruth uh, this morning. And let me just review for you briefly, and then we'll pick up where we left off. The uh, story of Ruth, of course, takes place in the time of the judges, uh, a time in Israel when they were morally corrupt and bankrupt. And we come across this story that is sort of just placed right in the middle of it. It's a story of a family. The man's name that we're introduced to is Elimelech. He is from the town of Bethlehem, which means house of bread. His name literally means, my God is king. Which is ironic. A man whose name means, my God is king, isn't living like he believes that. I'm sure there's a message there for us today as believers. Oftentimes we struggle to make our practice as good as our theology. And for many believers, they name the name of Jesus Christ. And yet if you were to watch their lives, you'd have to wonder if they truly believe what they say. The word Christian means something. It means I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. But that's not the message this morning. That was a sidebar for you to think about. Elimelech, my God is king, and yet he comes to a time in famine in the land. We know from God's promises for Israel that this famine has come to the land because of their sin. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. They had turned from God. Uh, they were corrupt. They were, they were ungodly. They were rebels. And God said for his covenant people, if you obey, I will bless. But if you disregard me, my truth and my law, then I will punish you. And part of the punishment is famine that God withholds the rain so that they cannot have bread to eat. And so the problem was Israel's sin. The problem was not their location. But Elimelech says, listen, what I'm going to do is this. I'm going to uproot my family from God's covenant people, not deal with the real issue or problem, and move them to Moab. Moab is about 50 to 75 miles away. Moab's a wicked place. It's a perverted land. They worshiped the god Chemosh. They, they were enemies of Israel. And yet Elimelech takes all that he has, his wife Naomi, whose name means pleasant, lovely, adorable, sweetheart, and their two sons, they move now to the land of Moab, and when they get there, Elimelech, who was seeking life, finds death. He dies. It's tragic. His sons then marry two Moabite women, Orpah and Ruth, and they're married for ten years, and after ten years, the two sons die. And the book opens in tragedy. It's tragic. Here now is Naomi, who is left without husband, without sons, without children, grandchildren. She has nothing in a foreign land. And then she gets wind that God has visited his people. Jehovah, Yahweh, has brought bread back into the land. And she says, listen, girls, 
I'm going home. I've been gone for 10 years now. I'm on my way home. I'm going back. But now listen, I have nothing to give you. I don't have any more sons. If I were to get pregnant today, you couldn't wait for them. I'm going back to my home. I'm going back to my God. I'm going back to Yahweh. I have nothing. You ladies leave. Go back to your homes and your families. May God bless you. But I have nothing for you. Both girls resist. They weep. They cry. They say, no, we're going with you. She again gives them a a speech. And Orpah counts the cost. And she goes back. And Ruth impassionately says, don't entreat me again. I will not leave you. And that great verse where she says, Whether thou goest, I will go. Where you live, I will live. Your people will be my people, and your God will be my God. And we look back to this point in Ruth's life. She says, I can't go back to Moab because I am no longer what I used to be. We would say in our modern day vernacular that this is a place and time when Ruth got saved. She trusted Yahweh. She trusted Jehovah. She calls upon his name. And we're tempted to see this incident incident in this passage and think, well, no big deal. Here's a Moabite woman outside of the covenant community. She has nothing, so she comes to Christ. I mean, it's exciting and all, but, but no big deal. No, this conversion is significant. It changes her life. It changes her life. Not only does it change her life, it changes our life. Here is Ruth, who will be the great-grandmother of a man named David, who will be the great-great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather of the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and there's a lesson here. Listen to me. Your salvation, no matter who you are or where you come from or what you've done in the past, it's significant. It changes everything. Aren't you glad this morning that when God saved you, it changed everything? I mean, everything. Not just our eternal destiny, which is, which is really great. I was on the road to destruction, now I'm on my way to heaven in God's presence and I'm reconciled back to Him. But it changes everything in my life now. I'm not what I used to be. God is doing the work and transforming me. Your salvation is significant. It changes your life. It changes the lives of others. Your children, your grandchildren, your family, and friends. Jump down with me now to verse number 19. Ruth says, I'm going with you. We're going back to God's land. Going back to Bethlehem, the house of bread. So they too went until they came to Bethlehem. And it came to pass when they were come to Bethlehem that all the city was moved about them and said, Is this Naomi? And she said unto them, Call me not Naomi. Call me Mara. means bitter. Don't call me pleasant. Don't call me sweetheart. Don't call me adorable. Call me bitter. And she tells them why. For the Almighty hath dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, and the Lord hath brought me home again empty. Why then call me Naomi, seeing the Lord hath testified against me, and the Almighty hath afflicted me. Here is Naomi. She comes home after ten years, and whether she is complaining or confessing, she says this, I'm in a dark place. I'm angry with God. 
In my wildest dreams, I would have never imagined that I would end up where I'm at now. I've lost everything. God has dealt severely with me. And she pours out her heart. She is honest. She is transparent. She makes it clear, I'm not happy with God. He's not doing what I asked him to do. I'm really upset. I'm angry. Don't call me pleasant. I am bitter. We talked about that two weeks ago. We said we appreciate her transparency. She does this within community. Would to God that this would be a place where God's people can come and forget the cheesy plastic smile and when you come in here and you're really hurting to say, you know what, I'm in a bad place right now. My life's not what I thought it would be at this point. It seems as if God is afflicting me. Not happy right now. Not pleasant right now. And we should be allowed to do that. Too many Christian people, you're plastic, you're fake, it's a facade. This is real life in the trenches. Bad things happen to good people. Christians suffer and struggle. And sometimes we're confused. And sometimes we don't know why. And sometimes there's no answer for us. And we should have a church where you can come and say, Listen, brother, sister, I am really struggling. Now, unfortunately, you know this. You can't say this to everybody. There are people in our church who are not godly, who are not spiritual, and all they do is gossip. Don't go to them. Okay? Go to people who love Christ, who love the Lord, that you know they love you, and let them be to you a shoulder to cry on, an ear that will listen. Come home and be honest, and then allow God to do what he did in the life of Naomi. He showed her that he truly is good and that he is sovereign in control. It was interesting two weeks ago after this message, when we went home back to the house, we, we talked about this point, and Greg and Kim were talking uh, about this point about where she said, call me bitter, and they said to each other, I wonder how long Naomi was called bitter. I wonder how long, she said, change my name, call me Mara. How long was it that the people of the community, or Naomi herself, went by that name? You know, it's a good idea when you leave this place, uh, instead of just talking about what's on for dinner or the game or how bad the pastor did and how he couldn't even dress himself this morning, all right, instead of talking about those things, maybe go back and talk about the Word of God where God spoke to your heart about what He's doing. Talk to your children. Find out what they're learning. Use that. And so they said, I wonder how often Naomi was called Mara. Can I tell you how often? She wasn't. Listen, this is how she felt. This was not who she was. There's a great lesson here, right? She was bitter at God, and she told folks about it. She told the community, and she worked her way out, and eventually she finds herself in a good place. She didn't stay there. Christian, listen to me. If you've been bitter for 15 years, something's sick wrong. And I mean that something's not right. You have forgotten the truth of God. She doesn't stay here. It's amazing to me, the, the writer of Ruth never gives any indication that anyone called her Mara. Matter of fact, at the end of the book in chapter 4, the people of the city come back and say, Naomi, you've been given a grandchild. She doesn't stay there. Chapter 2, we'll move our way through. 
It's interesting, they come back to, to Bethlehem now. They have no crop, they have no harvest, they have nothing. And instead of sulking about it and crying and whining, Ruth says to her mother-in-law, listen, let me go out and glean the fields, whatever's left, I will gather up so we can make a living for ourselves and survive. And so verse number three, and she went out and came and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and her hap was to light on a part of the field belonging unto Boaz, who was of the kindred of Elimelech. And we talked about this two weeks ago. I just want to touch base with this again. She goes out to find a field, and the Bible says it was her hap, or it just so happened, or, or we would say she got lucky. I used to have a youth pastor when I was a kid, a great youth pastor. He was a youth pastor at the age of 50, and we loved him. His name was Mr. Folger. And in tongue-in-cheek, he would say things like this. He'd say, now listen, let's pray, and maybe we'll get lucky. All right? That's what he said. Okay, that's not a good theology, all right? It doesn't make any sense, okay? Christian people don't believe in luck. From a human standpoint, it seemed like she got lucky. It just so happened. But from God's standpoint, listen to me. This was a divine appointment. This is how big our God is. In the midst of our free choices, the sovereign hand of God works. And we're in awe of it. Hey, I'm just going to go to this field. And it just so happens it's Boaz. And Boaz is not only a good guy, he's related to them. The story moves on in chapter 2. Boaz comes. He's a wealthy man, a man of valor. He's a good godly man. He's the kind of boss. Here's what he does. He comes to work and he says to all his workers, Hey, God bless you, man. And they all saw back. God bless you too, Boaz. I love working here. This is a great place. You're a great boss. I I couldn't imagine being any place else. He's a good man. And so he's there with his workers, and he looks, and this lady catches his eye. Ruth turns his head, like, who's that lady? Right? It's like, whew. And he says to the reapers, who's this out here? She's beautiful. That's Ruth. And I want to tell you something. He finds out it's not just her external beauty, but, but now they t- say to Boaz, listen, she's, she's the Moabite woman taking care of her mother-in-law. She's been working all day long. She's out in the field. When she takes a break, it's not some 20-minute smoke break or coffee break, right? She gets a drink of water. She goes back. She's a good woman. She's a woman of character, of character. She has character. And again, how, how encouraging it is for us. This is written in the time of Judges. Their society around them was corrupt, and yet we find Boaz and Ruth, men and women of character. Christian, listen to me. It doesn't matter what the world does. It doesn't matter who's in office. It doesn't matter what happens to the economy. It doesn't matter if the sky falls tomorrow. God's people need to be salt and light in this crooked and perverse nation. We ought to be the ones of integrity and character, of faithfulness, of compassion, And that was Ruth, and that was Boaz. Even in the midst of the chaos of their world at the time, they were doing right. Now we pick up the story, verse number 8. Then said Boaz unto Ruth, Hearest thou not my daughter? And what what sweet language. You're going to see, this truly is, this is a love story, man. Not all for love stories. I like like action ones where things are blowing up and stuff. But this is a really good story. One of the greatest love stories in the Bible. In this, hearest not thou my daughter, and do not, or go not to glean in another field, 
neither go from thence, but abide here fast by my maidens. Let thine eyes be on the field that they do reap, and go thou after them. Have I not charged the young men that they shall not touch thee? You know what he's saying here? He's saying, listen, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to take care of you. I told those young guys, hey, you're a good-looking woman. You touch her, you're going to die. It's in there. You have to read between. It's in there. It is. That's how men talk. This is a big property. They'll never find your body. If you touch her, you will die. He is protecting her. He is showing true love. He is showing true manlyhood to provide, protect, and to lovingly lead. That's what he's doing. He's doing that. He says, I told them, don't touch you. I'll kill them. He goes on to say this, And when thou art thirst, go on to the vessels and drink of that which the young men have drawn. Watch verse number 10 now. She hears this. And again, don't forget her plight. She has nothing. Nothing. Then she fell on her face and bowed herself to the ground and said unto him, Why have I found grace in thine eyes that thou shouldest take knowledge of me, seeing I am a stranger? Ruth knows who she is. She's a woman from a pagan land, a perverted nation. Her nation started from an incestuous relationship. That's Moab. They were perverse. They worshipped a false god. She comes back with baggage. She has nothing to offer. And she falls on her face and says, Why in the world would you, of all people, show me grace? You know why I love this book? Part of the reason is this. I can't think of a better picture of the gospel of Jesus Christ than that phrase. Don't you know, believer, we have nothing to offer God? I hear people saying, I I want what I deserve. Can I tell you something? We are sinners who have transgressed a holy, righteous God. He is holy. He is just. And his wrath will be poured out upon all sin. I've got news for you this morning. If you get what you deserve, you will face the wrath of God for all eternity in a place called hell. Even those who try to be good and religious and say things like, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to be baptized, I'm going to do my best, I'm going to be a good neighbor. God says that all of our righteousnesses, as we try to merit His favor, are like filthy rags. They amount to nothing. Hey, there are two kinds of people in this room and in this world. There are sinners who are lost without Jesus Christ. And you are already condemned. Jesus said, I've come to the world not to condemn the world. The world's already condemned. I've come to save the world. There are sinners in this room who are lost and condemned. And then the second type is sinners in this room who have been saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. And that's the difference, man. God, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned, unclean. That, my friend, is grace. And that grace this morning for the believer should still amaze us. 
And our problem is this. We forget that we, like Ruth, were outside of the covenant community. We were lost on our way to hell, bound for destruction. And by His grace, He rescued me. That's amazing. And it's that grace that's the only answer for self-righteousness and legalism and all the nonsense because that grace reminds me that from the pit from whence I've been dug. And when I forget that grace, I'm in trouble. What is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 5-11, through 11, it talks about there. He says, listen, and add to your faith knowledge and virtue and self-control and, and brotherly kindness and charity. And if these things be in you, you'll abound. But if they're not in you, you have forgotten something. And here's what you've forgotten. The gospel. You've forgotten grace. You've forgotten that God saves you. How dare we uh, stand in self-righteousness and condemn everyone around us? We've forgotten that we're sinners saved by grace. She falls on her knees and says, I I don't know why you're being gracious to me. I don't deserve anything. And may we this morning as believers fall to our knees and say to God the Father, your grace still amazes me. Your love is still a mystery. Each day I fall on my knees because your grace still amazes me. And that's what she does. Verse 11, And Boaz answered and said unto her, It hath been fully uh, shown me, all that thou hast done unto thy mother-in-law since the death of thine husband, and how thou hast left thy father and thy mother in the land of the nativity, and are come unto a people which thou knewest not uh, heretofore. And then he, he acknowledges her, her character, her integrity. Verse number 12, he prays for her. Here's what he says. The Lord recompense thy work, and a full reward be given thee of the Lord God of Israel, under whose wings thou art come to trust. And this is a beautiful picture. He says, I'm praying for you. May God reward you and bless you, under whose wings thou hast come to trust. And, and, and that phrase just has the idea of God as a, a chicken or a, an eagle, I think, of, of, of taking his wings and protecting and loving and caring for his people. We find that that typology throughout the Old Testament. Just listen to these verses. Psalm 36, 7 says this, How excellent is thy loving kindness, uh, O God! Therefore the children of men put their trust under the shadow of thy wings. Psalm 57, 1, In the shadow of thy wings will I make my refuge until these calamities be passed over. Psalm 63, 7, Because thou hast been my help, therefore in the shadow of thy wings will I rejoice. Now listen to me. It's important to understand this. This is how God describes himself to his people. I will protect. I will care. I will take care of you. My provision is sufficient. This is the Lord God, Jehovah speaking. But let me ask you a question. Does the phrase under your wings and gathering as a chicken sound familiar maybe in the New Testament? Matthew 23 Jesus Christ says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how oft I would have gathered you as a, as a hen gathers her chickens and ye would not. You say, okay, what's the big deal? Here's the big deal. You know Jesus often does this? He gives himself attributes that only belong to God. Who does he think he is to say, Jerusalem, I would, have, I, I would and I long for you to come and I would have protected you as a chicken, as a mother protects her chicks under their wings, but you would not. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I am God. Never doubt it. What a great truth this morning 
that our God protects, he provides, he takes care of. It is under his wings is what we truly need. It is the only safe haven in this world. And it's all that we need. And so he tells her that. Verse number 13. Then she said, Let me find favor in thy sight, my Lord, for thou hast uh, comforted me, and for that thou hast spoken friendly unto thine handmaid, though I be not like unto one of thine handmaids. And Boaz said unto her, At mealtime come thou hither, and eat of the bread, and dip thy morsel in the vinegar. And she sat beside the reapers, and they reached her parched corn, and she did eat, and was sufficed and left. And when she was risen up to glean, Boaz commanded his young men, saying, Let her glean even among the sheaves, and reproach her not. And let fall also some of the handfuls of purpose for her, and leave them that she may glean them and rebuke them not. And what he's saying is, listen, fellas, she doesn't know what she's doing. I'm going to protect her and take care of her. When you're gleaning, leave some stuff on purpose for her. And when she picks it up, don't yell at her, don't rebuke her, just let her go. I'm going to take care of her. Verse number 17. So she gleaned in the field until even and beat out that she had gleaned. And it was about an ephod of barley. And the truth is with that ephod, it's about five and a half gallons, 22 liters. It's enough food for two women to survive for two weeks. And she's been blessed. Great story. Great truth. So many things we can talk about this morning that we've already talked about a number of things. Let me just point out one truth before we leave this morning. Because in the book of Ruth, there are two prayers. The one is for Naomi. She prays that her, her daughter-in-law would find rest. And you're going to find that that prayer is going to be answered. It is answered. The second prayer is that of Boaz, and he prays that God would bless Ruth and that she would be taken care of, recompensed, and given a full reward. They're both answered. Two thoughts under prayer this morning. The first is this. Prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer moves the hand of our God. Do you know that our God is known or wants to be known as the God who hears and answers prayer? And it is incumbent on God's people to understand He has chosen prayer by the means to which He will move and work on behalf of His people. And there's not a Christian in this room who would say, "Uh, I'm not sure that's right. I don't believe that. I don't think the Bible teaches that. We know that. But what is it about us that every fiber of our being, we take prayer, knowing it moves the hand of God, and and we, 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 we put it on a shelf somewhere down here because we'd rather do anything other than pray. I don't know about you. Let me be honest with you this morning. There are times in my life I would rather sleep than pray. And some of you who are self-righteous, you fall asleep while you're praying, so what does it matter? (laughs) I would rather watch TV at times in a game than pray. And it seems in my own life, in my own flesh, I would rather do anything than pray. I'm just being honest with you, and maybe I'm the only one in the room like that this morning, but that's just, there is something about prayer, and whether I think it's a waste of time, I have other things to do, I need rest right now, but listen to me, prayer moves the hand of God, and we wonder why in our lives our Christianity is weak and anemic, because God's people don't pray. 
I've heard people say, where's the God of Elijah? And they, they look at the Old Testament. God did this and God did that. The question is not, where's the God of Elijah? Where's the Elijahs? James chapter 5 says, he was a man of like passions, but he prayed, and the effectual, fervent prayer of a righteous man, a righteous woman, availeth much. God's people this morning, we must understand, we are called to pray. It moves the hand of God. How's your prayer life this morning? All of it. If we're honest, I know we've got good people. We have people who know how to pray. I've prayed with them. I know that. If we're honest, we don't pray. We, for, for many of us this morning, you couldn't praise God for five minutes. You, you couldn't. I challenge you today. Okay, God, thank you for, I'm alive. Okay, I have food in my house. Okay, I have a home. I have a vehicle. I'm born in this country. After a while, you run out of stuff. You know? Some of you are thinking, well, pastor, I don't have a home and, and I don't have a car that runs. Okay, you got me there. Go move to Haiti and eat mud pies then. Pray. Praise. If it moves the hand of God, could we not this week, every day, for five minutes, pray for our family? If this is how the hand of God moves, could we not, for five minutes, pray for those in our church who are struggling and suffering? Could we not pray for this church and this body of believers? Could we not pray for world evangelism? Can we not pray? Prayer moves the hand of God. And I challenge you this week, leave this place in five minutes a day. Now, if you want to do more, I don't want to be legalistic, you can, okay? Five minutes a day, pray. I, I think some of you would be shocked. Oh, God, you, know, you go through your list, it's like, okay, how long has it been? Two and a half minutes. I think you'd be shocked. Prayer moves the hand of God. And number two, prayer changes the heart of those who pray. And there's two ways this happens. The first is it, it changes my heart and my attitude. Years ago, I was... Years ago, I was 20, 23 years old. I was reactivated for the second time for the United States Army. It was, it was during 1991, the, the, uh, the Persian Gulf War. And uh, I had made a terrible mistake. The first time I enlisted in the service, I was 17 years old. That was part of the mistake, all right? Uh, the second mistake was this. I really believed that if I would just go off to the service and live a good life in front of people, they would know I was a Christian. Because I was different. I didn't, I didn't swear, I didn't smoke, I didn't drink. And what shocked me was this. <clears throat> After four weeks of, on a bus in Fort Knox, Kentucky, I said to some guy, yeah, I'm a Christian, and four people said, I didn't know you were a Christian. We talked about this the other day at the cross-current training. The quote that says, preach the gospel every day and only use words when necessary. And I get what that means, right? Live your life right, and, and people should see that. But I want to tell you something. Without the proclamation of the gospel, you're not preaching the gospel. It has to be spoken. And so the second time I went to the service, I, I, I'm not that <clears throat> dense. I learned a lesson. 23 years old, was in a room of, of men, about 12 to 16 men, and the first thing I said was, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. Not a Baptist, not a churchgoer, a follower of Jesus Christ. And, and there was an atheist in my room. And he wasn't just an atheist. He was a loud, antagonistic, obnoxious atheist. The ones that you really hate, you know what I mean? Not that I hated him. Well, not right now. Um, and, and he would do things to irritate me. He would use the name of the Lord in vain on purpose in front of me, knowing I was a Christian. And, and the truth is, I know the world swears. I have no problem with that. I mean, I don't like the language, but the world does what the world does. But it's amazing to me they don't curse the name of Allah, Mohammed, Buddha, or the Pope. 
They curse the name of Jesus Christ. That should tell you something. It's a name above every name, right? He will be Lord. And so I, 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 I was irritated with him, and so I wrote out Exodus 20. This is how God... I wrote out Exodus 20, verse 7. Thou shalt not take the name of the Lord thy God in vain, for he will not hold you guiltless who takes his name in vain. And I posted it on our door. And I'm up in my bunk, I'm reading my Bible. He comes in, closes the door, and it's silent here. He says, who's a nutcake that... You know, he goes on and on. And I said, it's me, you know, and, and i got to tell you something. I knew he was an atheist, and I wanted him to know God, and I was willing to arrange a, a, a meeting with the two of them. All right? I didn't like, and I'll tell you what. I, I thought to myself, let's step outside this building. I'm going to put off my Christianity just for five minutes, and we're going we're gonna to deal with this, right? I'm, my flesh is wicked. I'm just telling you the truth. That's how my flesh thinks. Um, and God convicted me. And he said, Rick, you're an idiot. That, that's my name from the Lord usually is idiot, knucklehead. What, what are you thinking? And I began to pray for that guy. Can I tell you what happened? Um, he did not get miraculously saved. I don't know whatever happened to that guy. But I'll tell you what happened to me. My heart was transformed. I no longer hated him and wanted to see evil for him. I felt compassion. I felt pity. I, I, prayed, I, I earnestly prayed for him. Not that a tank would run him over. Right? I, didn't, I prayed that he would come to a saving knowledge of Christ. It changes our heart. And there's a second thing about how prayer changes the one who prays. And you're going to find it in the text here. Boaz prays for Ruth. And here's what he says. God, bless her. God, repay her. God, she's come under the shadow of your wing. Lord, you protect her. Now, here's what God does. And, and he's really funny. Do you know who he used to answer Boaz's prayer? Boaz. God, reward this woman. And God takes Boaz, and Boaz is the one who protects her. Boaz is the one who provides for her. Boaz is the one who gives her food. And Boaz will be the one, ultimately, who marries the woman. This is how our God works. Remember in Matthew chapter 9, the end of the chapter, Jesus says to his disciples after a great revival, he says, look look out to the harvest. It's white. It's ready to be reaped. But the labors are few. And then he tells his disciples, Pray ye therefore that the Lord of the harvest will send forth laborers. And so they pray. Guess what happens in chapter 10? He sends them out to the harvest. They're the laborers. Listen to me this morning. Not only does prayer change, move the hand of God, but prayer ought to change us. It ought to change us. Um, you say this morning, Oh God, that family is, they're hurting, Lord. God, they're struggling. I know financially they've had a you know, downturn. Oh, God, please, 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 would you provide for their needs? And then God says, <clears throat> excuse me, you know the Colombo thing? Uh, excuse me. Are your bills paid? Do you have food in your home? As you're praying for me to meet their need, I have an idea. How about you go and you buy them groceries? How about you go and drop a hundred in their hand? How about you go and take care of that need? That's what God does. Dear Lord, I know they're discouraged. I know they're struggling. Lord, I know that they've had a hard time as of late. I can see it in their eyes. I can see it in their faces. Oh Lord, please, 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 would you encourage them by your spirits? And God says, hmm, do you have a phone? Can you make a call? Can you write a letter? 
Can you stop by? Maybe a shoulder for them to cry on? How about you do a Boaz? Oh God, they're coming to our church and we're so thankful. What a great family. And Lord, please help them to feel assimilated. Help them feel part of this place. Lord, help them to know it's a good place and good people. And so God says, and this is the voice of God, don't you have a coffee thing right after church today? And instead of running out of here, why don't you stop? Why don't you introduce yourself? Why don't you say, listen, here's who I am. We're glad you're here. Why don't we get together for a coffee? Why don't you come over to our place? God will use you to answer that prayer. Oh God, my family's lost. They're without Christ. Will you send someone to witness to them? And so God dials up a missionary from Africa and brings him back to Canada. And God says to you, wait, wait a minute, let me, um, you want someone to witness to them. Uh, are you born again? Did I save you? Do you know what happened in your life? Here's an idea. While you're praying about that, why don't you get up and why don't you witness to them? Two challenges this week. Pray. Five minutes. Pray. It moves the hand of God. Your life anemic and weak as a believer? You see nothing happening around you? Seek God's face. He rewards those who seek Him. I'm not talking about healthy, wealthy nonsense. I'm talking about real life deals. Pray. And number two, as you're praying this week, how about you do a Boaz? You are God's hands his feet, his lips. Allow him to use you to show his love and grace and power to others. Do a Boaz. I dare you. I double dog dare you. And watch God use you to meet needs. Let's pray this morning.